The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Yesterday, Sophie B. Hawkins emerged in 1992 with a fierce bidding war for her debut album, Tongues and Tales. The Columbia Records release quickly went gold, earning her a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist, resulting in the single Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover leaping into the top five. Another gold album, Whaler, followed two years later along with the single As I Lay Me Down that would chart in Billboard for a record-breaking 67 weeks. By the time she got to Timber in 1999, she had won universal respect for her rare blend of gutsy honesty. Her latest song, The Land, The Sea and the Sky, was written in tribute to those affected by the critical oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, to which she is dedicated in raising awareness to the enormity of an ecological and human disaster now unfolding in a severe and unpredictable world. Sophie, welcome to you today. I'm so happy to be talking to you again. Oh, it's so nice to have you here. Uh, your work is absolutely inspirational. So pleased to have you back. And it was a wonderful conversation last time. And what I'd like to do today is really expand on your life and career. And I'm sure that at, towards the end of this program that we're going to be talking about the awful events down in the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. May I start by going back to the beginning of your career, maybe even going back a bit further to understand better about you so that our listeners can understand understand where you've come from. Where did you grow up, Sophie? I grew up in New York, New York, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and yeah, that's where I grew up. (laughs) Did you, from a very early age, realize that you wanted to be a songwriter, a composer, as it were, and a performer? Yeah, but I didn't have any access to it. I Like a lot of normal kids back then, no one was really pushed to do anything, so I had this feeling when I would listen to Bob Dylan because my parents loved Bob Dylan and they loved all kind of music but I had this feeling when I listened to Bob Dylan that that's what I was going to be but I didn't know what even he was I just knew that that's what I wanted to be and so I had an identification already really early and I remember sitting looking out the window and sort of writing songs but not really understanding that that's what it was and then when I finally was 14 years old I finally got on to uh, an African drum teacher and started taking African drum lessons. And I had been trying up until that point to do that, but I was a real loser. And I couldn't make it to the drum lessons. I like I could never find my way, really. And then when I finally found my way, it was a connection that was so unstoppable. I just knew from the minute I put my hands on that drum, this is it, this is what I've been looking for, and I finally am here, and I'm never, never going to stop. That's how I felt. How did your family feel about that? Well, they didn't think anything of it. They thought, you know, she's just like, oh, she's not going to do much. 
And so they didn't have an opinion about it. I think they were shocked that I was so invested, because I remember my father saying, why does she want a drum set? She'll never practice. This is such a waste of time, such a waste of money. You know, that was his attitude, because that's how he thought about himself. But I knew they were wrong. So anyways, they didn't think I'd amount to much, but they were totally surprised when when I did start writing really good songs, I think. So you've mentioned Bob Dylan, and now you get into the 1970s, the late 1970s. What were the influences then that you started looking at in terms of creating your own uh, tone and manner, your, your own awesome. music? Well, I love David Bowie. Just around, I remember my sister brought home that record, Changes One, from David Bowie, and that really, you, said, you know, you said the tone. That set the tone because I thought it was so creative and yet so accessible, and um, it was so stylish. And I loved it because I loved old movies like Marlena Dietrich and Greta Garbo, and I think he really combined all the elements of great old Hollywood films and then, you know, pop music and um, really intelligent lyrics. So he really, really affected me, and I thought that's the direction. Of course, even by that time, I wasn't nearly at the point where I could do anything creative with my life. Now, did you work with any other bands, any other songwriters oh, yeah. during this stage? Well, I mean, I w like I said, I didn't start playing anything until I was 14, and then I had to practice a really lot before I ever got to play with people, but when I did, I was a marimba player and a percussionist, and I played with these great sort of world music bands up in the Berkshires and whatever with my drum teacher. I lived with my drum teacher, and he had a lot of bands, and he always brought me in, and everyone hated that I was in the bands. But I did learn a lot, because I was so young and so inexperienced. But I learned a lot, kept working on it, kept working harder than anyone, really. And then um, I expanded to drum set, and then I played drum set behind a band called The Pink Men. And then I started singing and writing my own songs from the drum set. And that was really when I started to define myself more. Now, you, you arrive in 1992, and your Tongues and Tales, I mean, th this amazing album. What led you to that? I mean, by that stage, had you gone through this awakening of really finding yourself, really finding yeah. music? Yeah. Um, what were the challenges at that stage? And you're, you're trying to, as an artist, create music, develop music, develop yourself, and then you get into this commercial world right. of, of actually having to... Uh, sell it. What were those challenges for you? That was really an interesting question. Well, up until Tongues and Tales, I had been, and this is unusual for people now today, but I had been writing songs, so many songs, hundreds of songs, and recording them at any one studio I could get into, and, you know, just recording them myself, playing all the instruments and whatever. So I had tons of demos, and I had played with Brian Ferry by this time. I was his percussionist. I had really, really been working a lot and I, it's almost like I had already lived ten lives. And then suddenly, really, it was, it was almost sudden. I had been working so many years, and then suddenly seven record labels wanted to sign me. And it was because I had developed all this material, and the timing was just right. I was a coat check. I gave my demos to somebody, and then it just caught on like wildfire in New York, and everyone wanted to sign me. And so then I had to deal with that, and I was uncomfortable. You know, about your question, I was very uncomfortable even about the meetings to sign me because I really had then developed a style, as you can hear on Tons and Tales, and I developed um, a whole artistic vision of myself. And so I had to then sit with all these guys who were much, much older, and they were in the business world, and I had never really been in that world. I didn't know anything about it. 
And um, I had to make a decision about my whole career and pick a label, and I chose Donnie Einer and Sony, who was just Columbia then, by the way. It wasn't even Japanese-owned. So um, I really had a hard time. I basically would work really hard, and it was very serious, and got along with the people who were involved only in the music-making process, like the producer. But everything else, I would just go home and hide after that. I was very uncomfortable. Are you becoming very spiritually aware at this stage are, are you are you going through a deep level of self-consciousness in your well, life i think that i did so on so much before this i was really lucky that i wasn't successful up until this point because i got to go through so many stages before i was signed but i was always really and still am my whole nature is a spiritual nature so I wasn't self-conscious, and I felt like I was making the record I wanted to make. And the only frustration I had artistically was that sometimes people would bring in the commercial elements too much. Like the engineer might say something, well, Madonna's doing this, and then I'd throw a fit. Who cares what Madonna's doing? We've got to, you know, so I was really, really clear about not imitating, setting a new path. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because I was talking, I had a program with the famous Ali Willis several weeks ago, and she said the same thing. She developed this style, she became very creative. She was probably uh, created a paradigm shift in terms of social media way back in the early 90s. And then she hits the commercial world, and then she's thrown through a loop because you are now taken from this uh, inner sense of well-being about what you do about the way that you uh, write and compose and the way that you sing and now you have to go into this from that special world sort of back into a into the into this world where you have all this commercialism and it wanes it it, it hits your your soul in what you're trying to create right. and there's always those things pulling at you i'm sure in your business yeah and and i don't think it ever stops and because on the one hand, you really do want to just create, and that would be the most amazing world. However, I don't know if you'll agree with this, if you were just left alone to create, you might not be as good as if you didn't have to struggle with the, with the world as it is and all the problems. And that's like even, again, going down to the Gulf and whatever, it's many layered. I think for all of us, not just artists, our work is our spirituality. I mean, forget going to church, which is great and whatever, or temple, but you really find yourself through your work, and that's your real spirituality. It's funny that you mentioned that. I posted, uh, which was uh, very unusual for me, on Facebook uh, last night, and, and I used this in a couple of my uh, films that I directed back in uh, 03, 04, those who, those who struggle are those who really live. And, uh, and I went on to say, I have really lived. And uh, it was amazing, the comments that I got back about that, but th that is an honesty that I believe in, is that we all struggle, and it's in those times that we really learn about ourselves and really w exactly. learn about the world that we live in. Exactly. Uh, and I guess that life is a, a struggle, but what you have to do is turn that around and see the great things out of it and and uh, become inspired and believe in yourself. And, and I'm right. sure that in your business, it's a constant battle you're having to be very creative in what you do and at the same time you have to balance that with all the commercial aspects all those things that are pulling at you right and i think one of the hardest things about that is being yourself am among people who are willing to not be as artistic and creative that's always very difficult and that's particularly difficult like in the bigger it, it would be easy to go away into a hut you know, with your few fans who love you, and 
but but to be among people who are willing to sell out to be successful and they're and they're willing to be I guess not the word isn't sell out it's it's being imitative and you know which what is it when you're not original and you're just willing to do whatever it takes to be commercial but you have to be among those people too and still be yourself and not get pissed off about it Your song, uh, Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover, uh, there has to be a story behind that, Sophie. I know, and it's really hard for me to tell. Like everyone, when they say, who is it about, I'm really reluctant because it will destroy the mystery. I love the mystery of that song. But you pull it from your own experience, Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that. you know, Harry Chapin said everyone has a hit song in them and it's their life story. That's me. That's my life story. And to this day, that's my life story. You move on, and you you are gaining great motion now and success. Um, you got to Timber in 1999, and, and it's really now you're working at full steam. I mean, are you enjoying this time? Uh, is it a inspired time for you in your songwriting? How is life for you at this stage? It sucked, and the only time was after, like very recently have I started enjoying it. I enjoyed it before the whole before 1992 and then now I enjoy it because around Timber was actually that's when I started having the biggest fights I was fighting with Sony about songwriting like they wanted me to start writing with other people and then we had huge fights about that because I'd written all the hits alone and I was a songwriter like you know Joni Mitchell's a songwriter you don't ask her to write with someone so I and not to say that I was on her level but I wanted to be and that's the point I aspired to be as great as the greatest and I knew I couldn't be if I gave in and started writing with schlock writers and that's what I mean about not about having to be yourself even if you know your world is getting narrower for a while you have to believe in that going into the desert or the wilderness so that around timber was when I had my biggest fights I actually left the label I sued them to get off the label because I knew they were either gonna, you know, they were just gonna stomp on me. They only released twenty five thousand records of Timber, and you know that I had sold multi platinum, and that was their way of saying we don't believe in you. You know, screw you. We're not putting anything into you. So I thought, well, I'm gonna die here anyway. Why don't I leave before I totally die? So you're going through this typical stages that that, typical, my, exactly. that my good friend Dr. Susan Anthony talks about in our Heroes series, that you are having to push back against this, this world of commercialism, consumerism, greed, right. et cetera, et cetera, right. and, and find yourself. Are there any sacrifices in that in terms of your career and the way yeah. that you now are writing? Well, the sacrifice then was realizing that I had to say, I'm I'm willing to not be famous. I'm willing to not have any support that I've been used to since 1992. I've been accustomed to, even though I fought fought with them, I was still accustomed to them supporting the albums to a great extent. And so I realized when I said to them, "I'll take my masters and go," they were gonna they were gonna put the kibosh on me, and they did. So I knew that was gonna happen. So I thought, well, can I survive this as a true artist? And this is the real test. I'm not young anymore. You know, in 1992, I was young, and it was my first foray into the world. Now I've been in the world, been successful. Am I willing to sacrifice all that success? And I had to say yes, because either I'll be an empty... I used to say, you guys are trying to make me into sweet and low. 
the sweetener. And my fans won't like it, and I don't imagine anyone over the long term will like it, even if I have a, a quick hit. So basically, yeah, and I did. And I remember people on the Internet, they were like, I hope she has a lot of money because she's, you know. <laughs> but I didn't even, you know. I was, I was really brave, I think. And I've survived. You move on to 2004, Wilderness, this unique sound that you create. Where were you going at that stage? Well, that was a really a cool place. And actually, I have to say I enjoyed that, even though I was really scared. That was that, um, okay, so Timber got picked up. After I left Sony, they got picked up, much to my surprise, by Ryko Palm. So I got to release that with the support of Ryko Palm. And then Wilderness, I said, okay, now I'm going to, instead of just being an imprint on a label, I'm going to be a label. So I was completely on my own then, and I just made a distribution deal, and I wanted to see how that went. And um, it was fun. It was it was an unbelievable amount of work. I mean, that I had never expected it took so much to be a, an artist promoting yourself. What is the motive behind that? And secondly, is it in itself uh, trying to create... A, a passionate turn and manner for the audience is it is it are you now trying to send a different message to the music that you had produced before yeah yeah and you know the interesting thing about wilderness is that i think it it wasn't it wasn't like it was sort of a commercial album and i was so i guess what i was saying is that 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 all of us human beings who are fighting against a giant corporate machine to have individuality and to really have a voice this is what it's like, and we can. And I'm doing it so you can do it. I was, you know, when you talk about setting the tone, I was really going out on my own and saying, I can do this, and you can do this, and anyone who helps me is part of this movement. And my fans did help me a tremendous amount. And, of course, my manager said I owe her ten faceless after that because it was so much work. And do, at the same time, people walk away from you? Of course. I lost, you know, a lot of people. <laughs> But but it was really good. It was good. And, I, and what's really good, to tell you the truth, sometimes when I wake up at four in the morning and I remember the kind of fear I had before I released Wilderness, the fear of failing and all that, I think I'll never have that kind of fear again because I've done it. And now nothing really on the business level, on the art level, can scare me that much. And that's why I think I feel so free now. You cannot buy freedom. You have to earn it. And that was me earning it. Ask you to You're now at uh, August 2006. Uh, you've got this debut live album, Bad Kitty Board Mix. Right. Now, that is a twist of events, is it not? It's, uh, you're taking it and, and throwing it all in the box here. It's, it's like right. a, a completely different uh, outlook. It's crazy because that, without my manager, she taped it without me knowing. Or she basically just gave the sound guy at the triple door a couple of bucks 
and said, would you please record this? And he said, yeah, sure. And so he did. And it was a really good show. And I didn't listen to it for a year. And then when I finally heard it, or maybe less than a year, but when I finally heard it, I said, oh, my, this is really funny. And that was my first reaction was that I released a lot of very serious records where I really tried to make them amazing. But I had never released that um, somebody capturing me really being funny, which I think is one of my greatest attributes on stage is my humor. So I liked it because of that. Now, you're talking at this stage, you're using a different narrative. You're talking about a storyteller and, uh, and yeah. as you say, an improviser. I, is this something now that is changing in you as a human being where you can become this storyteller? Yeah, yeah. It's like, again, and I, I guess I earned it again. It's like I, I had become comfortable with myself and... Um, accepting of myself and realizing that all these adventures and all these willing to walk off the cliff type cliff type things you know the tarot cards the fool who walks off the cliff all that had led into somebody who was really um funny and had a lot to say and had a way of saying it that was totally valid for anybody who wanted to listen so yeah that and i was willing to do that and i was willing to be totally stripped bare and not be all what you what you would call it when you process something and make it all commercial and nice. I was willing to be undone. And how how people. did that play out in the following years? How well, did that how did that change you both inside that mode of writing and then outside of that mode when you're with people, you're with family? How, how did you see yourself changing? Well, really, I I tell you, I became someone who could listen more. Relax, relax so much socially, not have to be loved, really just be an observer, like, you know, I am with my son, watching him, and it's a totally different way when you finally are able to be who you really wanted to be on stage, and it's like listening to those great singers, Anita O'Day and everything growing up, Billie Holiday, that I had finally become close to I became at the beginning of that new journey, which isn't the pop music success story. It's the real performer, the real singer, the real actor in a way. And is, artist. Uh, is, is this where you are able to perform, act, write, and be comfortable with being on your own? Yes. And, and I'll add to that, knowing that it was a lifetime journey, because I think a lot of people, when they have their first success, they don't know if they can continue it. You know, the, in each new album, you go, phew, I got that one out. I wonder if I can do a next one, you know, under all the pressure, whatever. And this was me saying, this is a lifetime. This is actually who I am. It's not me trying to be. This is who I am. And I also recognized I had become, and actually to take it to a more true level than just saying that I was funny, I had actually beco become a real musician. And a real musician is someone who can improvise and be who they are and relax and accept and, t you know, take every wrong thing and make it right in the next bar. That's what a real musician, a real musician is a perfect musician. Is, is, that, is that because you are in a deeper realm now? You're, yeah. You're, you're oh. in this real deep sense of consciousness where you yeah. don't have to be completely overwhelmed by all the typical human responses you right. know, like like victimization betrayal addiction uh, right. uh, codependency and everything else and now right. and yeah and also yeah and you don't have to get mad at everything and, and nothing has to be right for you anymore because you know that whatever it is you're going to make it work and that's the key 
to becoming, I think, even a true, any artist, like a painter, you don't have to have that yellow. You don't have to, you know, the wind can knock it over a million times. It adds to the work. That's where you become the true person, and that's where you start to really like yourself. Now, I now, if, if that is the case, yeah. it is at this stage you're clearly going through a, a huge internal change. Yeah. How, how does it affect those people around you? Are, are you actually seeing people act differently now, become yeah. calmer, become better in themselves when they're in your presence? Yes, and it's bringing out this beautiful creativity. Like, I, I will... Un- for instance, because I'm a woman, and a lot of women are always insecure about their looks and whatever, and I just had a kid, he's almost 20 months old, I am noticing, believe it or not, that people see me as more attractive, not just sexually, but in a whole spiritual, soulful world. People are always drawn to me, and they're coming up to me on all kinds of levels. And I thought at this point, after a kid, that people would not be drawn to me. Well, it's the opposite. And people want to be around me, and I don't have to be... Um, witty or anything. I don't have to be pretty or witty or anything. I, I just have to be myself. I had the great honor of a, a three-part series with the, the eminent scientist, uh, Professor Bill Tiller. And he talks about this. He talks about us having this bio suit on and the fact that when we fully find ourselves and we fully become conscious and aware, we become physically attractive, mentally attractive. As we are more attracted to people and we transmit this physical energy this electromagnetic energy that calms people around you and changes them to the point where they don't have fear of you and right. that, that's truly the awakening process that's so deep and it's so deep it's yes and i agree with that and i'm so glad that again that i had a child at this point in my life because any other point it would have really been more difficult for him to be my child but now it's a great time to be my child now, how was your life going to change when your child came along? How- well, I didn't know what was going to happen at all, but I have to say it's better than I could have imagined because he's so much himself, and he was himself even inside of my stomach. And I knew that. All I knew was that, was that this person has such a destiny, this person is so himself, I'm glad he chose me, and I hope I can do a good job. And I didn't know anything else. But um, I'm able to be a complete artist, in fact, even more complete, because he is so cool about me doing my work because he knew it. I feel like he knew it coming in. This is who she is. I am totally myself around this person. He's off, you know, in the park now doing all his stuff, and I'm sitting here writing. He's fabulous, and I learned so much from him. Now, now is he, again, is this another step in your life? where your music is now empowered because of that relationship? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cause, and also you see yourself, like, this person is totally new, and they see you as totally new. So in a way, I see some things as totally new. So I can be exactly simple and, ex- and exactly, like, again, I don't have to keep reaching for something. All I have to do is be in the place where I am. That's where it comes, and that's what I keep seeing. We're coming out to present day, um, and we are going to spend the, the latter part of the program, I'm sure, on an issue that we're all concerned about in the Gulf. But you're now writing a Broadway musical. Yeah. Um, you're working on a new album. N- now, at this stage, 
If you have been writing music for albums, the conventional methodology there, now you're getting into Broadway. How is your mind working now with musicals? There must be a different tone, a different methodology, a different way of looking at it. Yeah, there is, because the characters aren't me. But I have to use everything I have to make them come alive. I like this, first of all, it's the most exciting thing in my life, creatively, right now. I mean, the album is done, and we're just looking for some way to release it. But the musical is going to workshop in September, and I'm still writing songs. Obviously, every day I'm working on it. Well, the thing that I like about it is these characters are from, you know, it takes place in 1793, and the characters are so colorful. The characters are so unique, and I get to write all these different perspectives, you know, from a really tight wad French person to a very funky American, you know, gypsy river rat. And um, it's really challenging and really exciting. And the poetry has to be totally different because in musicals, you have to have true rhymes. You're much more limited in a sense, but that makes you be much more creative in another sense. Now, is that meaning that you are becoming more lyrical now than you had been before in your prime music? Yeah, and I can't believe how I, I didn't realize even on this level how important the lyrics are. It is all about the story. You talked about the storytelling. If I hadn't been where we talked about before, I couldn't be here because I'm realizing each song is about this amazing story that has to take the audience to a whole other place and reveal something they've never known before and reveal something inner and outer and do it with humor and style. Now, notwithstanding that, if you designing this for a musical and you you have these players these characters are you still finding that you are infusing into those characters and into that plot some of your own being oh yeah i think it is it is all my own being but you find that you're you know like again when you're in this place where you really trust the process you find that you are so many different people I mean, you maybe we channel other lives. I don't know what it is, but boy, some of these lyrics I I can't even believe. I only I do it. I do research like everyone does. You know, I I read about what it was like and so forth. But then when it just flows, it flows, and it's amazing how much we can channel. That's probably the word. Much more than I thought. Where do you find yourself where you, when you are actually writing the music and writing the tracks, thinking about the chords? Is there any special place, any special world that you have to put yourself in? That's really good. Well, the, the, the answer to that specifically is that there's a, a book that I helped work on. Really, G.G. Gaston and Thomas Meehan wrote the book. But you have this script in front of you, and I always go back, I keep going back to the beginning of the musical and back to the story and back to the characters as they are and and Leonard Bernstein said it's all about the book and it really is because every time you get stuck you just start reading through the story and you let your imagination take you and you go there, you go there to the place and the time and the relationships and the smell and you keep trying to go there more like you go, well if I'm stuck here what would she really be smelling at this time, you know, in the autumn of 1793 on this riverbank it's really cool so you're not in your present, what am I smelling now you're going back then and, you're, and, you're, and then all is going to come into the lyrics what does it really feel like to wear a corset how can I, what would I be singing like if my breath was totally stuck, you know 
And in your work now, do you work with colleagues? Do you work with assistants who help you, or are you very, no. very insular in that? I work alone, just like always, and it's so great. I work alone, and then, but again, the book is written and it's fabulous. So I really can't say I'm working alone because I'm getting all these ideas. Like they'll write, you know, the song should be called such and such, and then you know, so and you know, so and also. Really recently, I wrote my first song with the the book writer Gigi Gass, and she had a beautiful lyric, and it was you know a lot. So I worked with that and expanded on it. So sometimes it's alone, but I'm always in there writing alone and doing it alone. I don't have any assistance for it. I can't even imagine that to be honest with you. Let's look at the land, the sea, and the sky. Now, this track was specifically written and performed for our critical situation in the Gulf. Right. What was it that impacted you most to write that, and and how uh, how did that come about, Sophie? Well, I was just mentioning to you before we before we got on the radio. When I have just been down in the Gulf, and of course I had performed a lot in New Orleans and been a lot down there, when I was just down there now, it was reminding me how these people have always reminded me of what I think the Native Americans may have been like, because they have such a strong culture. It is based on hundreds of years of a way of life, and some of them, like the people on the feet, they have a whole society within our society and a whole system and there's systems of working which don't depend on the government and they don't want anything to do with our way you know a lot of them they have trading and they have you know systems of taking care of their old they're much different than ours so anyways land in the sea in the sky was basically inspired by my feeling of what it might have been like to be connected to the native american indians and then who is like that now that we're losing ground, that we're going to lose every aspect of our indigenousness and our connection to the land and the sea and the sky if we don't start becoming more conscious of our choices. So that's what inspired it. Clearly there are, there are Indian communities actually down in that region on these islands. Right. And from what I understand, they, their life now is being destroyed, right. if not already. Yes, already. What do you think is going to happen to the ways of life in that region? It, it appears, reading between the lines, that we really could see that whole region of the United States devastated, which I means that, that people have to really be trained or educated to have a backup, to realize that they may need to leave that region, and they may need to look at other things. How do you see that panning out now? Yeah, well, I, I think that that's what, like a lot of the fishermen we spoke to, and luckily we had local friends who are really locals, and so we had inside information. Most of them have already sold their businesses. They have made claims, you know, too late with BP because they didn't want to make claims. They don't want money. They really just want to wor work, and they really want their oceans and their fish back. And I hope that I can show this in the videos that I shot 
when we get that up on YouTube. But the point of the matter is, I think it's over because I don't see the oil stopping. And also, there's other rigs that are going to go, too. The whole thing is we've betrayed them, and not only we, because we've elected these people who we allow to be unresponsible. I think. And we've allowed it to go too long. And America really, and the whole world has to start raising its voice and saying, this is, all these games that you play, making us feel good about it, it isn't good. There's no good outcome to this. Except I think these people are going to have to start maybe growing sugar cane or some kind of alternative fuel. Like, I don't know what they're going to do, but they're not going to be fishing. Would you agree with me that this is a huge wake-up call? And sometimes in life... It takes something of this magnitude to actually change people's position and awareness to the point where great opportunities can come out of it. Yes, we can. We can see it like that, but we have to wake up. Like you just said, it, I almost feel the wake up call was so was maybe two thousand seven or something or two thousand eight. Okay, but if this is the wake up call, then we then this really has to be the one because when people lose this, what we're losing now. And this thing, by the way, they don't think it's going to close anytime soon. We, we as people have to realize that we have to demand the choice of alternative energy. Even if we want to use gas, we can demand that we have the choice because it's a cabal. Why do we have phone choices and not energy choices? It's ridiculous. We can put people on the moon and we can't make nuclear power generators for buildings. This is ridiculous. So we have choice points to make, yeah. and, and in order for people in that area or anywhere in the world to make those choice points, we have to educate them, we have to educate ourselves, right. and you can't really rely on the systems that we have in place now. It, it, it seems that they are irreparable. I agree um, you. The, you, the business paradigm is irreparable. We're, we're proving with this, and we're all accountable and responsible for it. So perhaps there's a way that, pe that people now need to become more conscious and more aware in community. And who do you think, where do you think that pivotal sense of respons responsibility comes from if it is not the government? How how do you think that we can do that beyond uh, the the beauty of music, um, philosophy? What is it to you that could broadcast a message, a strong message that says everybody needs to unite, everybody needs to to come together in spiritual awareness and a sense of consciousness right. that changes where we are? Right, and stop defending the people who betray you again and again, and look at the emperor with no clothes in every aspect of your life. And I think it's what you just said. To really have a community, you really have to be able to talk and be yourself and not be shut down when you start to talk. And now is the opening because now, even when I was down there, people had pictures of President Obama was saying, what now? And really, like this was a hugely um, you know, black community and mixed community, and they're not happy. And it's good. Because they're now saying it doesn't matter what color the person is. It doesn't matter what we project onto this person. It's always the same person again and again. And they're betraying us. So now people have to say, let's not, let's talk, first of all. Don't shoot the messenger. And start acting as a togetherness rather than saying, you know, you just, you're a racist. You don't agree with this. Or you're just a communist. Or whatever people say, just drop it. Because it has to be for the better good. I think it's that old example that 
we have these terrible faults in society where we do see addiction, um, betrayal, victimization, um, uh, codependency, all of these things, fear in life. And isn't it, is it not the way that whenever somebody points a finger, a hand at somebody, they're always, always four fingers are pointing back to themselves. Right. Perhaps we should uh, look at this more profoundly and first of all find ourselves, but find ourselves in community in order to get over this particular event. It may be that conventional theories or conventional practices uh, like anything that is occurring down there at the moment may not indeed work specifically to help those people you're right wrong ideas like there's a book called the age of the unthinkable and i don't have it near me but i read it uh, on the way and on the way back and it's it's the, the worst thing the thing that really makes people not survive is wrong ideas we have to lose our wrong ideas faster and we have to be willing to look at our own ideas as being wrong. And when you talked about the journey from, from 1992 to here, for me as a personal person becoming an artist, one of the biggest struggles was losing my wrong ideas. And that was, and you have to do it. You almost have to be forced to do it. And in this, this journey, there are many stages. And again, I refer back to this, this great lady, great friend of mine, uh, Dr. Susan Anthony in the, in the Great Britain, and this heroic journey that, that you go through, and you're going from this world into a special world, but you're still having to overcome hurdles. At this stage now where you've written this beautiful song and you are donating all of the, the profits to the, to the charity, what are the challenges that you face now? Are you still facing challenges, not only externally, but internally as to where to go from here? Yeah, yeah, and it's harder and harder to find, you know, support for, you know, this album that I have. And it, when I mean harder and harder, I mean it's harder to find the right choices because I've done so many mediocre choices in terms of that or just wrong choices sometimes. And now I have to, I have to stop and think because I really want it. You keep talking about the message. I want to do something healing and important and something that brings people together and brings me more and more into this special world. So I have to make really, there's only a few right choices. Maybe there's only one. And you have to be patient. And, I have to, and so the struggle is, even when certain things come up, like an offer, and the fans, they pressure me. You know, why won't you release your album? And how can I really express to somebody who doesn't understand? Because if I do it in the wrong way, I'll go nowhere and won't be any help to anyone. But if I can wait for the right way, I can really help a lot of people. So we're talking about a lot of planning, a lot yes. of patience. Yes. And, and smart. You've got to be smart. <laughs> and you've and got to read all the signs and not ignore some. So where are you now with this process? This You are still representing this, representing the people in the Gulf. What are yes. your expectations? Well, it's beautiful. What happened was I went down last weekend, the weekend that just passed, and we got um, a boat. A local fisherman took us out, and he wasn't supposed to. And everyone tried to stop us from going out. I'm going to tell you that the EPA just passed a law that if you touch the oil, and even on your finger, and any of it drips back into the ocean, you're responsible for it. So they're really doing everything to stop you from experimenting and trying to clean up, which is so ridiculous to me. But anyways, we did get out there, and we did have our gloves on, and we tried this guy Dan Sinekin's material, which is basically sheep's wool with a little bit of treatment on it, and um, his own patent, so I can't say what it is. And it worked. 
I have video of me putting it on top of these gigantic oil blobs, and and it's like a sham wow in the ocean they call it, and it really works. And they so we have that filmed, and we're going to put that up on YouTube. And the good news from it is we did generate some hype with the articles in the Huffington Post and the video of me doing this because now BP has called Dan Sinekin and he couldn't get them on the phone and he actually has traveled to where they were before and they wouldn't let him in the door. They're now flying him out to Florida to see his material and to talk about it. So we have done some good and that's all I kept saying to Gigi on the way back is, did we do any good? Do you think that there would be a message that you would have for these people in that region that perhaps they should consider options at this stage. Yeah, that they, they, so. they should consider maybe without panicking anybody right. because that's a, a futile purpose, that they may have to recognize that f- just for a while right. they won't be able to enjoy those beaches, they won't be able to enjoy home, right. that they may have to move away, they may have to look at other things. Well, I'm hoping that, in, that someone who really knows about, like, for instance, I heard, and I could be wrong, that, that a third of Brazil's fuel came from sugarcane because they had so much. And I just have always been reading about switchgrass and sugarcane, and there's so much land there, and there's so much Greenland, and it's so fertile. I was looking at it thinking maybe they, maybe this is the state that starts the movement on alternative fuels. I mean, not just potatoes and whatever they use in the Midwest, but maybe some people move down there, some college students or high school students, whatever, who can really um, take advantage of this uh, openness because there's a void of, of money, like they, they need to do something, and starts employing people doing something else and experimenting, and maybe again, don't listen to the government telling them not to. And if the government tries to shut it down, well then, let's protest. So, so we're really looking now uh, as part of this current situation finding alternative forms of energy, finding alternative forms of energy that can provide employment in right. in replacing the lifestyles that people have lost now. Right. And, and getting that message over and pushing it back against the conventional message that you have from the corporate mansion, that you have from consumerism, it, it's... It's an uphill battle, is it not, when people yeah. in this world are so used to uh, a, a, money, a, a life of convenience? Yes, um, but this is a good place to try it because people are not used to being wealthy, and they do have so much land where they could grow enough food to live. If they can work as a community and then have this community project, say, alternative energy, if they could start, because you can, you know, you can change your engine to alternative fuel. If they can start doing these small things, to survive and say we're going to get off the grid because there is no grid that cares about us or that reaches us, so we may as well. It's like imagine you and I say we had no money. We would have to get out in our yard if we have one and start growing our food. We'd have no choice. Well, if we had to do it as a community because we all had no money, it could actually work really well. Now, this is suggesting that we are looking towards a future of frugality, and I think that that may scare some but in actual fact, I think it's actually a good premise. Um, I've certainly I've been all over the world and filming all over the world and been places to like Nigeria, and I can certainly say that probably some of the happiest people I've ever seen actually have nothing. I wonder what it takes. What do you think it takes for people to transition, become fully conscious, and realize that it's not all about money? 
I think, well, this is the great, you're so right, because this is, first of all, the greatest, look, would you like to be in DP shoes now? Would you like to be Obama? It would be a nightmare. Would you really like, oh, I've never met a really, really happy, wealthy person, and I'm telling the truth, and I've met a lot of famous people, from the most famous, and they're always looking for something, just like the song says, Sweet Dreams. <laughs> it's true, and all the, um, the people who can survive on their own, they're looking for something, but the something is more important than what they're looking for. It's more of a fulfillment thing. And so, yeah, I think you can learn from experience. Look, would you like to be these people on these rigs? How about the people who died? You have to look where you are and say, I'm in a pretty good position. I'm alive, and I've got people around me who love me. I don't know how else to say it because we are so corrupted, really. But I can tell you firsthand, I'd rather be a great artist with no money than a bad artist with money. Where is your life going to be going from here, Sophie? Will you be continuing pursuing this in the Gulf as well as working on the musical and your, your new album? Yes. I mean, the musical's um, workshopping in September in New York, so I'm going to be there for that. The album is definitely going to come out um, so I'm going to be supporting that to whatever level. But my bigger interest, you know, and I'm always going to be painting. I'm painting a lot lately. My biggest interest, like we're talking about, is what we're talking about. If there is an opening to do something bigger with my life than, than writing music, I'm going to take it because I notice that I'm not saying no every time I get the chance. In closing, what would your message be to not just the people down there, but especially the children who may not be able to see their warm beaches and their their uh, their true childhood um, panning out. What would you say to the people down there to really hope for? Because there is opportunity that comes out of this, even though they may not be seeing it right now. Right. Well, they're going to be the first people to get to the light because they're the most betrayed. And I think, like even in the Bible, it talks about the people you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, and they are the most betrayed people that I've ever met, and they can use that to their advantage by saying, we have nothing to lose. You know how great it is when you have nothing to lose, sometimes. And they can use that to say, let's do something together, because who, who again, who wants to be rich and alone? Being lonely is the worst thing in the world, having mental illness is the worst thing in the world but having mental clarity and knowing what really happened is the best thing to not to know okay that's the lie i can only live in the truth now because the lie is so clear the worst thing in my opinion is not knowing what the lie is and i know so many people who are still in the lie who are still supporting the bad guys because they think it's politically correct that's crazy i think that for people in order to find this awareness find themselves find their soul find this different realm i think there is a period through which we have to travel on our own to fully find ourselves find what god has given us and um and i'm sure that people will down there they'll they'll find the spirit that they didn't realize that they had and i'm sure that they're all going to come out of this with greater opportunities and a greater life than they had before I agree with you, and they're really nice. I mean, what I love about, and this is again, it's a very, it's a very American idea to me, but obviously it comes from the America of the indigenous people, not from the Europeans who got here. 
they don't want handouts. And that is so different than a lot of people who go through, you know, uh, at least the fishermen don't, the ones that I spoke to. They really just want to find what their life is again and begin it and get on because they never did like anyone else's input anyway. You know what I mean? They have a great life and a colorful life. So I think that's a great way to look at it. If you're gonna, and this is what the government is trying to get us to all want handouts and to think it's so great to be taken care of. It's the worst thing in the world. And hopefully, because Louisiana considers themselves forgotten, hopefully there'll be an example of people who stood up and made it on their own. Well, uh, that is certainly defining what the founding fathers were about in this country, is that yeah. e each person uh, was his or her own capitalist with his or her, uh, her own tools, and they had their destiny in their hands. Yeah. And that is what, so, what is so wonderful about this country, and it seems to me that we are going through a huge test, and it's not just about America, it's about the whole world. I agree with you, and every country is doing it. You know what I thought of the other night? I thought... I learned this from the fishermen. Our work is our spirituality, and we are exporting all of our jobs. It's not just exporting jobs, it's our spirituality. It's the chance to do something. It's your whole, it's the crux of your life. So we're exporting that, like a lot of countries are doing this, and then they're importing people who really just want either money or to be taken care of or whatever. They have no respect for where they are because they come from the place they would rather be at. So really, what are we doing? That's crazy. We've got to start focusing on our work, um, and that's really what makes a nation great. Very quickly, a final statement uh, to everybody down there. For me? Yes. Um, uh, be strong as a community, be inventive, and be happy that you're off the grid, because everyone who's on the grid is going to suffer just as much as you in due time. Sophie Hawkins, it's been a great pleasure having you on the program today. I do wish you luck with all of your work, and I, I must say that we're all very proud of you for being uh, so passionate, involved in this this situation in the Gulf. Uh, your your participation and your strength is very valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program. You can follow Sophie Hawkins and her work, uh, particularly in the Gulf, at her official website. Sophie, what is that address? Oh, it's sophiebhawkins.com. And I would thoroughly recommend that you visit that. Uh, meanwhile, um, you can gain information on any uh, program in the series at davidgibbons.org, as well as uh, Sophie Hawkins. There is a blog that you can provide feedback or comments on this and any other program. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.